This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Grace of Kings, The Dandelion Dynasty by Ken Liu. It's a fascinating retelling of one of the oldest tales in East Asian history, the battle between the bandit-turned-warlord Liu Bang and the brilliant but ruthless aristocrat Xiang Yu for control of China. I can't say enough how much I love it for doing something new and unusual and most importantly fun with a 2,000-year-old story. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 97, The Dragon and the Rising Sun, part 6. The death of Mao Zedong in September 1976 marked a turning point in Chinese history. Not that you would know it immediately, before his death, Mao named a successor, a middling official named Hua Guofeng. Hua was a committed Maoist, that's why he was picked. He was more moderate than Mao, though, and in particular, he's the one who gets a lot of credit for finally sticking a cork in the Cultural Revolution. We didn't talk much about this last time because there's so much to cover in the life of Chairman Mao, but the Cultural Revolution was started in 1966 by Mao himself. It's enormously complex, but the short version is that Mao felt the party was becoming too bureaucratic and was in danger of slipping back into basically becoming the Guomindang with a fresh coat of paint. He was also afraid of losing control of the party. The failure of his economic policy, the Great Leap Forward, badly undermined his prestige, and the fall of Nikita Khrushchev in the Soviet Union in 1964 showed that even in a totalitarian state, a supreme leader could be ousted from power. Mao's answer was to turn to the masses, with whom he was still extraordinarily popular as the hero of the war against Japan. He told them that the party had been infiltrated by bourgeois capitalists who were poisoning the revolution. Instead, the people had to seize the revolution back from the elites, save it from them, and direct it themselves. The result was ten years of chaos sanctioned by Mao. Schools were closed, industries disrupted, and thousands, possibly millions, killed or displaced in an attempt to build a new society. The Cultural Revolution remains somewhat controversial, both because our sources on it disagree about who knew what and ordered what when, and because the legacy of Mao still has a lot of defenders, though few academic ones, particularly outside of China. While the stories of the Cultural Revolution are fascinating, I can't really justify spending too much time on them here, but I'll put the names of some good books on the topic in the post for the show so that you can read up if you're interested. By the time of Mao's death, it was clear just how much of a disaster the Cultural Revolution had been, and Hua ended up ending it by arresting the most prominent remaining proponents of the revolution, 
the so-called Gang of Four, a group of four pro-culture revolution party leaders led by Mao's fourth and final wife, Jiang Qing. Hua's turn against hardline Maoism shocked a lot of people, and some of the pro-Maoist communist parties even denounced him as a traitor, most noticeably Peru's Shining Path, which launched its own massive insurgency in that country to turn it into a Maoist state. That Maoist insurgency, by the way, is still going on, though it's been badly weakened since the 1990s. Now, Hua gets a lot of credit for ending the revolution, but in the end, he was outmaneuvered politically by another faction of the Chinese Communist Party, and here's where we need to step back and backtrack. Remember last week, I talked about the appeal of the Communist Party back in the 1930s. It essentially broke down into two messages. Mao will bring you the revolution, and Mao will defend you from the Japanese. These two messages elicited two very different responses from two very different groups. On the one hand, the communist message attracted a group of committed Maoists to the party. On the other hand, the nationalist message attracted people who may or may not have been sympathetic to communism, but who believed Mao was the best hope for rebuilding China. For ease of comprehension, I'm going to call these factions the Maoist and developmentalist wings of the party. Just know those are my terms, not theirs. Now, the two messages created a split within the party itself. Mao's suspicion of the more developmentalist group was one of the sparks behind the Cultural Revolution. While Mao lived, the Maoist faction of the party was in ascendancy. After all, how could anyone criticize any of the policies of the man who had saved China? After his death, however, things changed. Criticizing Kwa Guofeng was a lot easier than criticizing Mao. The developmental faction of the party was led by one of the released leaders of the Cultural Revolution, an old revolutionary of unassuming stature named Deng Xiaoping. Deng was originally from Sichuan in China's rural interior. He joined the party in the 1920s, though some historians have suggested, and I agree, that he was motivated more by nationalism than by communist fervor. In other words, he simply saw Mao as a better leader than Chiang Kai-shek. Whatever his motivations, Deng joined the communists in the late 1920s. He participated in the Long March and was one of the 7,000 survivors of it, and during the war against Japan, he served as the political commissar for the communist armies in the north, ensuring that they remained ideologically committed to the revolution. During the final stages of the Civil War, he was responsible for engaging in propaganda activities in conquered territories to ensure the acceptance of Maoist ideology. A somewhat funny post, to be sure, for a man who may or may not have believed that hard, but apparently he was pretty good at it. After the war, Deng served as mayor of Chongqing before returning to the capital at Beijing and beginning a meteoric rise to the central leadership of the party. However, that's where he ran into trouble. Deng opposed economic reforms, like the Great Leap Forward, with good reason since they were more disaster than reform. After the end of the Great Leap Forward, he worked hard to reverse its policies, and he was very successful in doing so. However, his actions also convinced Mao that Deng could not be trusted and was not as ideologically committed as he should be. During the Cultural Revolution, Deng Xiaoping became a target. In 1968, his son was targeted by the Red Guards, a Maoist organization of party youth who were to act as enforcers of the revolution. 
Dung's son was tortured until he jumped from the fourth story of a building to escape his tormentors. He became paraplegic as a result, but is actually still alive, and is now an active campaigner for Chinese people with disabilities. In 1969, Dung himself was purged from his office and sent to the countryside to be rectified by engaging in menial labor to get him in touch with the mindset of the workers. Or just kill him. Either one would work. Eventually, Mao's second-in-command, Zhou Enlai, who sympathized with Deng's position, arranged for him to be rehabilitated and brought back to the leadership. After Mao and Zhou both died in 1976, the clear struggle for control of the party was between Mao's successor, the aforementioned Hua Guofeng, and Zhou Enlai's preferred candidate, Deng Xiaoping. Unfortunately for Hua, Deng was much better at politics, and by 1978, Deng had brought enough of the leadership of the party to his side to take control of both it and the country. In this, his biggest asset was the loyalty of the People's Liberation Army. He was one of the last officers from the old days of the war against Japan left alive, and it gave him a lot of political credibility that Hua lacked. To his credit, Deng did not throw Hua out of office or send him off to an out-of-the-way prison camp or anything like that. He just shuffled Hua off to the side. Definitely an improvement over the old days of sending people off for forced labor. Deng Xiaoping would revolutionize the leadership of the party by making it more consultative. It would no longer be dominated by one man as paramount leader, because doing that with Mao had been, let's be honest, a huge disaster. Instead, he made all decisions in conjunction with a group of senior party leaders. His successors would continue this line of operation as well. Deng also revolutionized China's economic system by making it more market-oriented. We're not going to get too much into the weeds on this because it involves a lot of extremely unsexy discussions about economics, but the short version is that state controls over the economy were relaxed, but not eliminated, agriculture was decollectivized, and private enterprises were allowed to operate much more freely. However, the government retained strict control over any industry considered strategically valuable, so steel, for example, and monetary policy was very carefully regulated. If this sounds very familiar, well, it should. This is the same kind of regulated or developmental capitalism that helped rebuild Japan after the Second World War. It's basically the same playbook with a picture of Mao thrown on top. This new Chinese capitalism, or to use the correct term coined by Deng, socialism with Chinese characteristics, proved immensely popular with China's wealthiest neighbor, Japan. Part of Deng's reforms was the creation of special economic zones, areas where regulation and taxes would be very limited to encourage foreign investment. These zones were concentrated in the south and southeast, Fujian and Guangdong provinces if you're curious, and Japanese money was some of the first money through the door. By and large, Japanese policy towards Deng's reforms was overwhelmingly positive. Four factors drove the Japanese embrace of Deng's regime. First was the Cold War. As we mentioned last time, the Chinese and the Soviets had split back in the 1960s, and strategic planners in both Beijing and Tokyo were very worried about Soviet influence in Asia, especially after the Vietnam War, when Vietnam moved pretty decisively into the Soviet camp. Japanese planners wanted to build up China as a counterweight to Soviet influence on the Asian mainland. 
Second, the generation of Japanese leaders in charge at the time were all old enough to remember the war against China. Fun fact, Japan didn't actually get a prime minister born after World War II until Shinzo Abe's first turn in the office in 2006. Many of them felt some degree of responsibility for past Japanese behavior, and supported Chinese economic development partially out of a sense of responsibility. To put it another way, the treaty between the two countries, which normalized political relations, did include a clause saying that no reparations would be paid, but let's just say that two decades of low-interest development loans to the tune of around $3 billion from Japan did not come entirely out of generosity of spirit. Third, there's a common line of thinking in international politics that wealth and trade tend to moderate regimes. Poor or economically desperate countries tend to be the kind that turn to extreme measures. This is, for example, the common explanation for the rise of fascism in the 1930s. Thus, if you wanted to make a country stable and productive as part of the global order, you would trade with them and invest in them, and once they get wealthy, they'll be good neighbors. After all, now they have something to lose. This was very much a part of Japanese thinking in relation to China in the 1980s. Fourth and finally, China was simply worth a lot of money. The large population represented a market for Japanese goods and a huge pool of cheap, untapped labor, and then there were the massive natural resource deposits. Thus, the 1980s became something of a golden age for Japan-China relations. Official visits began to take place regularly, with Deng's party secretary Hu Yaobang visiting China in 1983, and Prime Minister Nakasone returning the favor in 1985. Not that there weren't problems. Even at this early date, the history issue, as it's called, started to rear its ugly head. As we've discussed before, Nakasone Yasuhiro has the dubious honor of being the first sitting prime minister to visit Yasukuni after the decision to enshrine Class A war criminals within. The visit sparked an uproar in China, strong enough that no prime minister until Koizumi would even consider visiting the shrine. Then there's the infamous textbook controversy. We've talked a bit about the way the education system in Japan works, but for a quick refresher, the Ministry of Education produces a list of required content points, so you must mention the following points about the Meiji Restoration, that kind of thing. Textbooks are then written by private publishers and reviewed by the Ministry of Education, which decides whether they fit or do not fit those guidelines. Approved textbooks can then be selected by local school boards. In 1982, the first modern textbook controversy was sparked by an Asahi Shinbun report that the Ministry of Education had forced a word change in history textbooks, specifically from Japan invaded neighboring countries to Japan advanced into neighboring countries. Both the South Korean and Chinese governments objected, and the Japanese actually did back down. A new clause was added to the textbook guidelines. Quote, Textbooks ought to show understanding and seek international harmony in their treatment of modern historical events involving neighboring Asian countries. For the most part, however, these incidents were very much minor, and relations during the 1980s were very stable. In 1989, however, Japan and the rest of the world got a clear reminder of the fact that while Deng Xiaoping may have been moderate economically, politically he was not prepared to brook a serious challenge. 
Specifically, on April 15, 1989, students in Beijing took to Tiananmen Square to protest in commemoration of Hu Yaobang, the reform-minded party secretary who had visited Japan seven years earlier. He died recently and had been seen as something of an anti-corruption moderate reformer. He was very popular with the student set. These kind of commemorative protests in Tiananmen were not uncommon. The same things happened after the death of other famous party leaders, like Zhou Enlai. Students were generally given carte blanche as long as they advocated only reform, not revolution. This is just what happens with troublesome intellectual types. Sometimes they go protest things, you just let them do it. However, the protests continued into May, and two things changed their tenor. First, workers started joining the protest. This was not okay in Deng's eyes. Students could be politicized because they were part of the intellectual elite, but workers engaging in protests were much more dangerous. Second, the protests morphed from commemoration of the ideals of Hu Yaobang into wider protests against corruption and for government accountability and transparency and, of all damn things, democracy. Party leadership was initially paralyzed about how to respond, but Deng stepped in. The party was obviously what was right for the workers, the farmers, and the nation, and anyone who said otherwise was a counter-revolutionary. And there's only one thing to be done with counter-revolutionaries. In the early morning of June 4, 1989, the People's Liberation Army moved units into Beijing for the purpose of clearing the square. We don't know the death tolls that resulted, but probably they were in the range of several hundred people. This served as a reminder of just what kind of regime Deng Xiaoping was running, and a wake-up call to those who figured that economic liberation would definitely lead to political liberalization. In the United States and Western Europe, condemnation was immediate and loud. In Japan, however, the reaction was a bit more muted. The government of Uno Sosuke, who came to power literally the day before the suspension of the protests, followed the American lead in freezing aid to and relations with Beijing, but Uno's successor, Kaifu Toshiki, unfroze the relationship after only a few months, Uno having been forced to resign over a sex scandal involving a geisha, the scandal not being that Uno had had extramarital sex with the geisha, but that he had not treated the geisha very well. Prime Minister Kaifu was the first leader of a G7 country, the seven most powerful economies on Earth, to resume relations with Beijing. Japan then led the way in restoring relations between China and the other G7 states, acting as a broker between them. We don't know why Kaifu made this decision, but the best guess is that, frankly, he figured China was worth too much money to risk interfering in their domestic politics over something as silly as political idealism. In the 1990s, the relationship between Japan and China continued to thrive. In fact, from 1992 to 1995, it was even warmer than it had been, since in Japan a socialist-led coalition government had ideological as well as practical reasons to be sympathetic to the still at least nominally Marxist Chinese government. The most potent symbol of this friendship was a trip by the sitting emperor, Akihito, to Beijing in 1992. Even here, though, not everything was smooth sailing. The police broke up several anti-Japanese protests and arrested one activist who threatened to light himself on fire in public if the emperor did not apologize to the Chinese people while he was in the country. On balance, though, when Deng Xiaoping died in 1997, he would have had every reason to believe 
that the Japan-China relationship was headed somewhere good. Sure, there was still negativity here and there, but it's not like the countries of Europe got over everything overnight after 1945. Things were headed in a good direction. However, by the 2000s, that began to change. First, in Japan, a more assertive, nationalist group of politicians began to rise to prominence within the LDP. The first of them was Koizumi Junichiro, who reignited the old Yasukuni controversy as we've discussed before. Funnily enough, when Koizumi left office in 2005, his successor was praised in the Chinese media for his efforts to rebuild China-Japan friendship after that terrible nationalist Koizumi had done so much to damage it. The name of that successor was, of course, Abe Shinzo. Second, by the 2000s, the communist government was running into a problem of legitimacy. You see, economic reform had made China much wealthier in aggregate, but that wealth was being concentrated in the hands of a select few. All of a sudden, China was looking less like a socialist worker's paradise, and more like the sort of capitalist state the masses had rejected during the Civil War. The government did what it could to maintain its Marxist image through redistribution, aid programs, that kind of thing, as well as official pronouncements. After all, Marx himself said that a state had to industrialize through capitalism before it could become truly socialist. But the simple fact of the matter was that it was becoming increasingly unclear if people would put up with sacrificing for economic growth, already things like pollution were starting to become a problem, while they missed out on most of the benefits. What would happen if they turned on the government? So the party was forced to look elsewhere for its legitimacy, and found that legitimacy in nationalism. During the 1990s, the communists had begun to promote a new history curriculum centered on the idea that the communists had been the ones who saved China from Japan, and were the only ones who could keep China strong enough to ensure that the country was never at risk again. Of course, this ignored the considerable military contributions of the nationalists in fighting Japan, far greater by pretty much every measure than the communists. As the first generation educated with this ideology came of age in the 2000s, anti-Japanese feeling in China began to rise along with them. It's always hard to know what the Chinese leadership is thinking because they don't really have to justify themselves or explain themselves to anyone, but extrapolating based on their actions, the general stance towards anti-Japanese sentiment seems to be, we're okay with it when it serves our purpose. Whether that purpose is rallying people to the homeland, or impressing on the Japanese the importance of being generous in their dealings with China. After all, we in the government are the reasonable ones. Just look at these people in the streets. The rise of the Democratic Party of Japan in 2009 brought a brief thaw in the Sino-Japanese tension, since the DPJ openly advocated for closer ties with Beijing at the expense of Washington, D.C., but in 2010 the first round of modern spats over the Senkaku Islands undid what goodwill had come of that. This gets us more or less to today. On both sides, the political leadership seems less interested than ever in playing nice. Abe Shinzo, for his part, gets a good chunk of his backing from Japan's hard right, which is opposed to what it sees as Chinese attempts to villainize Japan for things that happened a long time ago. Abe's desire to build up Japan's military into something closer to normal for the country's size and influence has also been criticized by Beijing as potentially destabilizing. And then, of course, there's the whole history issue, with Abe making visits to Yasukuni and all that. On the Chinese side... 
the party general secretary and president, Xi Jinping, has attained a level of power unheard of in China since Mao Zedong. He's done away with the consultative group leadership model implemented by Deng Xiaoping and has purged his enemies, including many of the most prominent remaining members of the Maoist wing of the party, through the guise of battling corruption. There were pretty high hopes when he came to prominence that he'd tamper the fires of nationalism in China, but instead he's really stoked them, while taking an increasingly hard line on China's territorial disputes and building up the strength of the Chinese military. Both governments have also been giving each other the cold shoulder politically. There have not been any official bilateral government-to-government visits since 2008. Certainly things don't look great, and I can say anecdotally that I've met people in both China and Japan who are convinced another war is coming. It's impossible to know if that's true, but I certainly hope no one on either side's actually that stupid. For the foreseeable future, the relationship between China and Japan is going to be an ambiguous and tense one. The history issue is not going away anytime soon. Even with the death of what's left of the World War II generation, enough has been done on both sides to keep the memory of the war fresh. That dispute is not going anywhere. On top of that, there's all the usual tension that occurs when a falling power like Japan finds itself next to a rising one like China. Though that balance could change, you never do know. On the other hand, the two countries are bound together economically as well as culturally, both through the shared background of traditional Chinese culture and the modern import of anime and video games, both of which have substantial followings in China. I want to close this series with an anecdote from my time in China, shout out for CLS Suzhou 2014, that I'll always think about when I talk about this subject. When I was there, I'd practice my awful Chinese from time to time, with students on the campus I was studying at, and eventually I got confident enough that I'd start asking them about their views on issues sometimes. One girl will always stand out to me. When I asked her what she thought of Japanese people, she said she thought they couldn't be trusted, and then pulled out her Sony smartphone to show me a word she'd used I hadn't understood. I think that says something, but I'm not really sure what. I suppose in the end, only time will tell us where it all goes from here. That's all for this week. Special thanks this week to Bradley Nixon and Robert Ling for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time for a very brief history of Japan's native outsiders, the Ainu.